Well, turn with me, if you would, to John chapter 8. Now, this chapter of John is where we're going to be spending our time together this week and the next couple of weeks. And this morning, we're going to specifically be looking at verses 12 through 20. As you're turning there, as, as many of you know, I'm an instructor by vocation. I've spent many years now teaching in a multitude of different settings, both in the military and out of the military. And as part of my job, I regularly have people who come into my classroom and observe or watch me teach. And it's a common practice that after they do so, they come and they give me feedback on my teaching, whether verbally, well, actually both verbally, and then also they write it up and I get it in written form as well. And it happens several times throughout the year that this happens, and, and people who come to watch me teach can be from all different types of departments, from all different types of settings, and all kinds of backgrounds. And in my past experiences, it's, it's not uncommon for someone to come and to observe or to watch me teach who has had absolutely no experience with teaching whatsoever. Now, it isn't a problem, except that oftentimes they would provide me feedback about something specific that had to do with teaching that, quite honestly, they don't know what they're talking about. They would sometimes say things or provide feedback that, quite frankly, showed that they had never had to get in front of people and speak or teach or present information. And in those moments, what they were really revealing is that they really weren't qualified at all to pass judgment on my teaching. Now, for those of you who know, Spencer, she teaches music in the public school, and that would be like me going into Spencer's classroom as a music teacher and then telling her about how she's teaching music incorrectly. Now, I may know how to teach, but I know absolutely nothing whatsoever about teaching music. That's outside my expertise, and I'm not qualified to pass judgment in that way. And that's what we're about to experience this morning. We're going to read this morning, or what we're going to read this morning is the same as if somebody were completely and totally blind, someone who had absolutely no light perception whatsoever, making judgment about light from the sun. A person who is blind in that way, who has no perception of light or dark, is not qualified to speak to the qualities of light in that way, and yet... That is what blind men are going to do this morning in our passage. They're going to stare at the sun. They're going to stare at Christ, who is blazing right in front of their own eyes, who they cannot truly see, and they're going to pass judgment about him, even though they are not qualified to do so. So with that, I want to read our passage this morning. Like I said, it's John chapter 8, verses 12 through 20. Again, Jesus spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So the Pharisees said to him, You're bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. Jesus answered, Even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true. For I know where I came from and where I am going, but you do not know where I come from or where I am going. You judge according to the flesh. I judge no one. 
Yet even if I do judge, my judgment is true, for it is not I alone who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. In your law it is written that the testimony of two people is true. I am the one who bears witness about myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness about me. They said to him, Therefore, where is your father? Jesus answered, You know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. These words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple. But no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. As we approach the text this morning, the the main idea or the big picture, very simply that we want to take from this passage is you can know God through Jesus. You can know God through Jesus. Now, it has been a while, excuse me, it's been a while since we've been in the Gospel of John. I believe the last time I preached in John was a year or two ago. Now, of course, then, as we come to John 8 again this morning, I'm sure that everyone who is here before remembers everything that we talked about last time when I preached in John chapter 8, verse 12. But in case, in case there are a few of you here this morning that do not, let's do a quick review to get us up to where we are in the text. The section that we're in this morning is actually in an extended narrative that goes from John 7, verse 1, all the way through John 10, verse 21. And we know this because John 7, verse 2, references the beginning of the Feast of Booze, which is where this narrative takes place. The next marker of time that we have comes in John 10, verse 22, where John references a new feast, the Feast of Dedication. So that means this morning we're with Jesus and his disciples in Jerusalem at the time of the Feast of Booths. Now, up to this point during the feast, Jesus has made some bold claims about himself to the crowds. So what claims has he made so far? Well, the first claim that he made was during the water libation ceremony in which water from the the pool of Siloam was carried in a procession led by the high priest back to the temple. And that water was offered to God at the time of the morning sacrifice, along with the daily drink offering of wine. And the wine and water were poured into the respective silver bowls, and they they were poured out before the Lord. Now this ceremony, this water libation ceremony that they did during the Feast of Booths was related in Jewish thought to the Lord's provision of water in the desert. Or a picture of God's salvation, his deliverance. And and ultimately, in the future, to the Lord's pouring out of the Spirit in the last days. And it's during this ceremony, during this time in the Feast of Booths, that in John 7, Jesus cries out and he says, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. So Jesus' first claim during this feast to the crowds was that he is the source of all spiritual blessing. That Christ alone is the source of all spiritual blessing. Which is a bold claim. Now the second claim that Jesus made during the Feast of Booze was during the lighting ceremony. And that's what we have in John 8 verse 12. And our passage this morning and the section of scripture we're going to spend our time in this week is direct result of this claim of Christ. And during this nighttime ceremony, four huge lamps in the court of women were lit. 
the people would spend the night celebrating under the light in the temple area. And it was said that this light was so bright that it would glow, its glow would go throughout all of Jerusalem. So you can imagine with me that in the midst of the lighting of these huge lamps and the people celebrating in the temple area, Jesus stands up against this background and he declares to the crowds, I am the light of the world. Right? He's saying that he alone is the true source of light and life for all men and any who follow him will not walk in darkness. <clears throat> Now, these are two bold claims by Christ. He's looked at the crowds and he tells them that all of these ceremonies, all of it points to him. He is the source of true spiritual life. He's the source of salvation, of blessing. He is the source of light. And like the pillar of fire by night and the cloud by day that led the Israelites through the wilderness, if they would follow him and him alone, then they would never walk in darkness. They, they would be saved. They would be so full of spiritual life and blessing that out of them would flow rivers of living water. And up to this point in the narrative, the Jewish religious leaders, they, they haven't said anything to Jesus directly. Back in chapter 7, they sent some authorities out to him to arrest him. But those authorities were so awed by his teaching, they came back empty-handed. So then when we see in John 8, verse 13, the Pharisees are now there with Jesus, and, and they respond to this claim of Christ. And, and what do they say? They, they say in verse 13, you are bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. The question is, what's the point of this statement that they're making? Or the... To understand this, we have to understand the legal context from the Old Testament. So there are two clear sets of verses in the Old Testament that speak to whether someone's testimony was valid or not. It's found in Numbers 30, verse 35, and Deuteronomy 19, verse 15 through 21. So I'm going to read those so we just get the context for what these Pharisees are saying. And in Numbers 30, verse 35, it says, If anyone kills a person... The murderer shall be put to death on the evidence of witnesses, but no person shall be put to death on the testimony of one witness. And in Deuteronomy 19, starting in verse 15, it says, A single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime or for any wrong in connection with any offense that he has committed. Only on the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses shall a charge be established. I think these help us to understand more clearly really what the Pharisees are saying when they make this statement to Christ. And to be honest, I think that the NIV or in the CSB translation get, get a truer sense of the verse than what we have here in the ESV. Instead of translating the second half of the verse, your testimony is not true, they instead translate it, your testimony is not valid. And the focus of the Pharisee's statement to Jesus is that his testimony is not a valid testimony because he doesn't have a valid witness as was what was required in the Old Testament. Really what they're saying is that they're saying a person cannot be a valid witness for themselves. And since Jesus is making these bold claims about himself, 
And in their eyes, without another witness, then what he is saying legally cannot be valid. In other words, what they're saying is that Jesus, what the words that he is saying, that they have no legal worth. They're trying to undermine the validity of what Christ is saying. So how does Christ respond to this accusation? Well, he says in verse 14, if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true. Once again, I think the other translations get a little closer, and they would translate, if I, if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is, is valid. So he looks at the Pharisees and tells them, you're wrong. Even though he is talking about himself, his testimony is valid. He is, in fact, qualified to bear witness, but his enemies are not. And this statement is connected directly from his claim to be the light of the world. And as I was preparing this week, I read this extremely helpful quote. It says, "Light, light establishes its claim and does so not by arguments, but by shining. Light must always be accepted for itself and notwithstanding the objections of the blind. Did you catch that? Nobody who can see walks around in Columbia, South Carolina during the summer on a clear day and doubts the testimony of the light from the sun in the sky. Anybody who can see knows that the light is true knows that everything the light shows is true, is valid. It needs no other witness because what it shows for itself is sufficient. And that is what Jesus is saying here. Like These Pharisees are like blind men who are making claims about sunlight which they cannot see. And they are not qualified to do so. Well, we know that Jesus is God, so whatever he says about himself is true. However, to be clear, to be clear as we read this, Jesus actually owes no explanation to these Pharisees. He does not need to defend himself. He is God. Yet what we see in these verses then is Jesus' kindness to this to these men and to every single person here this morning. What follows is love and kindness to these hard-hearted men. It is, it is love and kindness to us. God does not owe anything to any part of his creation. He doesn't owe any sort of explanation for anything to do with himself. He would be perfectly justified to leave us in an ignorant state and to condemn us for all of eternity. That means yet what is absolutely astounding then is that Jesus doesn't do that. And I think we oftentimes, we read the scripture, we read the narratives, and, and we can easily miss what is going on. We read words and forget that this is in the context of real people. And what Jesus is doing this morning and in these verses, he's revealing more of himself. And that is love and kindness that we do not deserve. He gives these men, and he gives us then an explanation or reasons why his testimony is valid, why it has legal worth, and in doing so, he is giving them, he's giving you and me another opportunity to see himself for who he really is. 
Don't miss that as we move forward with Jesus' reasoning and argument. This is God's kindness. This is his love. I mean, imagine with me, if you will, a person who's been in an accident and they're lying on the side of the road and by providence, a doctor drives by, sees the man, gets out to help them. And as the doctor begins to help this man, does the doctor owe this man any sort of explanation for what he's about to do to him? No, he doesn't. He doesn't. Yet imagine with me that this doctor, as he's working on he gently lovingly, compassionately explains to that hurt man who he is and everything that he is doing as he does it. Why would the doctor do that? He's not doing this for himself. He doesn't have to explain himself, but he does it out of love to help calm fears, to help him understand that the hurt person understands so he won't be scared as the doctor does things that may be painful to him. In a very small way, that's what Jesus is doing, except for as Jesus does this, this morning in these verses, he's actually speaking to dead men. Jesus is being loving to these spiritually dead men and to us here this morning by explaining once again who he is. He is revealing to them, and we're going to see over these next three weeks, he was revealing to them his true identity. Why do I say once again that he's doing this? Because this isn't the first time that Christ has done this. I mean, we we jump into chapter 8 this morning, and it's easy then for us to view this narrative in isolation from the rest of Scripture or how we got here, but that's not the case. That's not what truly has happened. By this time in Jesus' life, he has done so many things to demonstrate his true identity, for his light to shine forth brightly, and he has even already had this kind of conversation with people. We'll look at it in a minute, but I think it's so important to see God's love towards these people. This morning, the scripture verse that I read before we did the offering was a conversation, interaction that Christ had with the crowd where he was explaining who he is, and that was back in John chapter 5. So we get a picture that this conversation, these things that Christ is saying, he does it over and over and over again, time and again throughout his ministry. He is so patient. This is Jesus living out the truth of Romans 2, 1 through 4. And Paul writes, Therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. And we know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Especially verse 4. Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. And as we go through these weeks, we're going to see Christ's kindness as he reveals himself once again and calls people to see him and to respond in repentance. So, so far, the, the, the religious leaders have said, you know, you're talking about yourself. Your testimony is not legally valid. He says, even if I do talk about myself, as the light, my testimony is valid. But he doesn't just stop there. He gives reasons. He says, why is Jesus' testimony? That's our question that we would ask as we approach this text then. Why is Jesus' testimony about himself valid? And that brings us to our first point. Our first point this morning is you can know God through Jesus because of Jesus' divine origin. 
His first point is that my testimony is valid because of my divine origin. His first argument is found in the second half of verse 14. He says, for I know, right? And if we look at 14 together, it says, even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true or it's valid. And here comes his first reason why. For I know where I came from and where I am going, but you do not know where I come from or where I am going. So unlike the Pharisees, Jesus knows his origin And he knows his destination. He knows that he came from the Father in heaven and that he's going to return to the Father in heaven. He made the same claim throughout his ministry. Like I said, the verses that I read before we took up the offering, Jesus makes it clear three times in those verses that he was sent from the Father. Even during this same feast back in John chapter 7, verses 25 through 29, we read, Some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, Is not this man whom they seek to kill? And here he is speaking openly, and they say nothing to him. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? And verse 27 say, But we know where this man comes from, and when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. So Jesus proclaimed as he taught in the temple, You know me, and you know where I come from, but I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true, and him you do not know. I know him, for I come from him, and he sent me. They thought they had Jesus figured out. As they looked at Christ, they thought he was a nobody from Nazareth. He was a man like everybody else. He went around preaching and teaching and claiming things for himself that could only be applied to God. He did miracles, yet had the audacity to do such things on the Sabbath. He spit in the eyes of the established religious leaders and spent time with the untouchables of society. That is how they viewed him. They viewed him as a blaspheming troublemaker who who threatened their authority and control in Jewish society. They were blind men looking at the sun in the sky and making judgment about its light. And Jesus looks at them and tells them, even though they cannot see, even though they don't understand, he knows his divine origin. He knows his true identity. He came from the Father, which he has already told them, and he is going to go back to the Father. So what is his first argument then for the validity of what he says he says his claims are valid because he as the light of the world is from God and is going back to God well that is his first argument this morning the second is you can know God through Jesus because of Jesus's relationship with the father He says, not only is what I'm saying valid because of my divine origin, but what I'm saying is valid because of my relationship with the Father. And he expounds on his relationship with the Father in two separate ways. First, he says that his authority, that Jesus has the Father's authority, that his authority is the same authority as the Father. And he says that in verses 15 and 16. He says, you judge according to the flesh. I judge no one, yet even if I do judge, my my judgment is true. For it is not I alone who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. 
Now, on the surface, these verses could seem confusing, so we want to break it down so we can fully understand what Jesus is saying. And so what does he mean when he says, you judge according to the flesh, I judge no one? Well, he's making two points here. First, he's telling them that they are judging. When, they say, when he says they're judging according to the flesh, he's saying they are judging by human standards. You judge by human standards, I do not. He's making a comparison between himself and these Pharisees. He's telling that unlike you, I don't judge. I do not judge in the same way that you do. D.A. Carson, I think he, he says it well when he writes on this verse. He says, Jesus means rather that he does not judge anyone at all the way his opponents do. For He doesn't appeal to superficial, fleshly criteria and accordingly mark people up or down. If that is what his opponents mean by judging, Jesus does not do any of it. So that's part of what he means. I, I don't judge by the fleshly, human, sinful standard that you do. That's one thing that he means by that. It's not the only thing. Throughout the Gospels, Jesus also has made it clear that in his first coming, he did not come to judge. In John 3, 17 and 18, he said, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. In his first coming, Jesus came to complete the work of redemption. He did not come to be judgment upon the world. His first coming wasn't the time for that in redemptive history. Now, to be clear, we know that that day is coming. And the book of Revelation makes it clear that Christ will return one day. And when he does, he is not coming to save. He is coming to judge. Jesus, so, so that's what he means when he says that, but he continues his argument. So not only does he say, I don't judge by the same standards you do, and I didn't come in my first coming to judge, but he continues his argument in verse 16. He tells them that when he does judge, it is judging by a correct non-fleshly standard because it's the same standard as the father who sent him jesus came from heaven and when he judges he judges with a perfect heavenly standard he is making a stark contrast between himself and the pharisees they judge by a human standard he judges by a heavenly one and these blind men who would judge Jesus by a human standard, think they are qualified to assess the validity of what he is saying. Jesus is saying that's ridiculous. These men are not qualified. Now he's going to say something similar to these in chapter 12, and, and when we get there, in John chapter 12, he he says in verse 44 through 50, And Jesus cried out and said, Whoever believes in me believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And whoever sees me sees him who sent me. I have come into the world as light, so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him, for I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. The one who rejects me 
and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. And I know that his commandment is eternal life. Therefore, what I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. So as I read that, can you hear the same themes as what Christ is saying this morning in John 8? Jesus makes this argument time and time again throughout this gospel, and they miss it every single time. So Jesus' statements about himself are valid because his judgments are the Father's judgments. In other words, he judges with the same authority the Father does. He judges with the same heavenly standard as the Father, so he has the same authority. But not only does Jesus have the authority of the Father, the Father himself is a witness to Jesus. Jesus and the Father testify to Jesus' identity. Jesus and the Father testify to Jesus' identity, and we see that in verses 17 and 18. He continues, says, In your law it is written that the testimony of two people is valid. I'm the one who bears witness about myself. So that's one. And the Father who sent me bears witness about me. That's two. Jesus says that the law states, right, that the testimony of two people is valid, It's legally worthy. That's what we looked at at those verses from back in Numbers and Deuteronomy. Right, as we looked at the the truthfulness or the validity of testimony couldn't depend upon statements of only one witness. There had to be more than one person who were saying the same thing. And we actually see this play out later in the life of Christ as well when he's arrested. When he's arrested and he's brought before the Sanhedrin, And they're trying to establish a charge against him, a charge of blasphemy, because they want to put him to death. And we have this interesting interchange, and we see it in Mark. I'm going to read Mark chapter 14, verses 53 through 61. It says, And they led Jesus to the high priest, and all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes that came together And Peter had followed him at a distance right into the courtyard of the high priest, and he was sitting with the guards and warming himself at the fire. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they found none. For many bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. And some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands. And in three days I will build another not made with hands. Yet even about this their testimony did not agree. And ultimately we see there that the high priest is going to get up and question Christ himself. Because they couldn't find two people, two witnesses who said the same thing so that they could say what their testimony was valid. So we see this play out and Jesus who knew the law, he understood that his statements didn't stand on his word alone. They could. He's the light. We, we looked at that, right? He is the light. What he says about himself is valid. He is God. Yet as he's done throughout his ministry up to this point, he makes it clear that there's actually a multitude of witnesses confirming what he's saying. Now in this passage, he emphasizes that the Father is the one who confirms what he is saying. He says, I bear witness about myself, and the Father does too. 
So there is more than one witness. Now, Jesus doesn't state it explicitly in these verses. So the question is, how does the Father testify to Jesus? Well, Jesus made that clear. That's why I read that passage before we, we took up the offering. Earlier in John 5, verses 30 through 4, and what Jesus said in those, those verses is he said, my works are the Father's works. My works bear witness to what I am saying. He says, my words are the Father's words, so my words bear witness to what I'm saying. He says, actually, the Father himself testified to who I am, and we see that in Scripture at his baptism. Right? At his baptism, he's being baptized, and the clouds open up, and a voice from heaven, this is my Son, in whom I am well pleased. And the Spirit descends on him like a dove. The Father has, bears witness to his identity. Not only that, Christ says, actually, all the, old, all the scriptures that you cling to and you search for life, they actually all point to me, and they testify to me. So there are a multitude of witnesses that testify to the validity and the truth of what I am saying. The father has been a witness to the identity of his son from the very beginning and throughout Jesus' entire ministry. So the evidence then of the light of the world is actually clear for all to see. And that's what Jesus is saying. The father bears witness that what I am saying is true. Look at my works. Look at my words. Hear the very words of the father. Look at the scriptures. They are all screaming and pointing to me. So the Father himself and the relationship of Christ to the Father, that's why what I'm saying is valid. That's not it. We've got one more point then this morning, one more thing. That's not all that Christ says. He says one more thing. Not only is it his divine origin, he says what I'm saying is valid because of my divine origin. What I'm saying is valid because of my relationship to the Father. He's also saying what I'm saying is valid Right? You can know God through Jesus because what I'm saying is valid because knowing Jesus is knowing the Father. Knowing me, Jesus is saying, is knowing the Father. And he says that in verses 19 and 20. They said to him, therefore, where is your Father? Like You keep talking about the Father, the Father, where is your Father? Jesus answered, you know neither me nor my Father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. So once again, after giving evidence of the validity of his statements, how do, how do they respond? Do they see? Do they understand? No, they do not. And in the face of this evidence, they are so blinded, they cannot believe what Jesus is saying, and they ask for the identity of his father. He clears this isn't a, a genuine question by a curious person. This isn't a sincere question by someone who truly is seeking to understand and know Christ. In general, in general, and we're going to see by the end of these verses, in general, they understand what Christ is claiming about himself. They understood it way back in John chapter 5. In John chapter 5, Jesus heals a man at the pool of Siloam on the Sabbath. And in verse 18, it says, This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. 
Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, they were upset with him for breaking the Sabbath, but not only that, he was even calling God his own father. And in doing so, making himself equal with God. They knew all along the things he was doing, the things he was saying, he was claiming that he was God. And that's why they wanted to kill him. These Pharisees in Jerusalem, they, they may be blind, but ultimately they're not stupid in the sense that they understand big picture what Christ is saying. They understand that Jesus is equating himself with God by saying that God is his father. By saying his works are the Father's works, his words are the Father's words, his authority is the Father's authority, the Father speaks to his identity, and all of Scripture points to him. They understand that what he is claiming is divinity. So in this question then, they want Jesus to make what is in their eyes a blasphemous statement. They want him to have an obvious blasphemous statement because they want to kill him. And we're going to see by the time we get to the end of this narrative, at the end of chapter 8, Jesus will give them that statement. He will give it to them clearly, unequivocally about his true identity. Well, of course, Jesus sees right through them. And we see that in Jesus' response. He makes it clear that They are giving evidence of their lostness because they don't know Jesus. If they truly knew the Father, as they claimed, if they truly knew God, then they would clearly see Jesus for who he truly is. Seeing Jesus is seeing the Father. Knowing Jesus is knowing their Father. There's an ignorance here, and we, we see this, even this this misunderstanding of Christ, we, we see it even in the disciples and, and we see it in John. Not with the same unbelief, but, but an ignorance that needs to be taught. And we see it in John 14, verses 8 through 11. And Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father. Or sorry, Philip, not Thomas. Philip says this. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father and it is enough for us. I mean, this is, this is near the end of his ministry. He's, he's about to go be crucified. And Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me, or else believe on the count of the works themselves. Now Thomas's or sorry, Philip's statement was sincere, whereas the Pharisees is not, but it's the same misunderstanding. Knowing Jesus is knowing God. That is what Jesus is saying. This is what he has been saying and what he will continue to say until the day he leaves his disciples and he ascends back into heaven. Jesus says that if you see him, you see the Father. If you know Jesus, you know the Father. Jesus makes the Father known. And I think we so easily forget the significance of that. I think to put it more accurately, I know I easily forget the significance of that. 
I read the gospel accounts, and I can easily say to myself, yep, Jesus turned water into wine. He fed the 5,000. He healed people. He calmed the storm. He forgives sins. He confronts the Jewish religious leaders. He dies on the cross. He rises from the dead, and he ascends back into heaven. And I read all those accounts, and I know all those facts, and oftentimes it can have very little impact on my life. And that's not the way that it should be. And that's not the way that it has to be. That is what Jesus is saying to you and to me this morning. And listen to me clearly and think about the importance of what is being said. To know Jesus is to know God. To, to see Jesus on the pages of Scripture is to see and know God himself. John said it best in his prologue. He said this is what he was going to show. And in chapter 1, verse 18, he says, No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. Well, who is the only God who is at the Father's side? That's Christ. That's what I'm challenging you with this morning. This morning, as we have talked about the love that Jesus is showing these men by engaging with him, the, the love and patience he has shown by explaining to them once again who he really is. And as we will see in the coming week, once, weeks, once again calling them to follow him, once again calling them to repent, once again calling them to truly see Jesus for who he is. And as we have seen and experienced the love of Christ in that way, we have seen and experienced the love of God. We can know God through Jesus. So to, to put very simply this morning, I want to leave you with one thing. If, if knowing Jesus is knowing God, then we should do whatever we can to know Jesus more. To see him more clearly. Because we know that as we see Jesus more clearly, we see God more clearly. So the question is, how do we do that? <clears throat> how do we do that? Well, what's wonderful is that God has not left us in our ignorance about who he is or about who Christ is. He has given us his word. And we see Jesus clearly right here, as we've read this morning, right here clearly in the pages of Scripture. In the word, that, that is how we come to know him better. So I'm going to give you a challenge and leave you with these couple things over these next few weeks as we're working through John chapter 8. First is, I'm going to want to challenge you to spend these next few weeks reading through this narrative. So John 8, verses 12 through 59. Read through the narrative. Every week. And then, and then from those verses that we cover on Sunday morning... So this morning, we cover verse 12 through 20. I want you to think through and write down one thing, just one thing that you see about Jesus' character, that you see something about who Jesus truly is in those verses, something about him that you see in these verses. <clears throat> just one thing. And then once you've done that, Talk with, call, text, email, however you want to communicate with one other person in this church body each week and share with them the one thing you learned about Christ that week. The one thing. 
The one, whatever that is, that one thing you wrote down for the week, share with one other person and then ask them what they have learned. And in doing so, you will come to know Jesus more. And in doing so, we will help one another come to know Jesus more. And as we come to know Jesus, we come to know God. We can know God through Jesus. Let us pray.